plenty of cups of Joe in your lifetime, maybe even a Dunkin' Donuts box of Joe, but this year, probably your first glass of Joe. Virtually, with my man PJ Glasser, I'm Joe Malfa, and we are very excited to get this show up and running. And PJ, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. It's pretty amazing that it's almost June, right? I mean, March felt like Crazy. a year, and then April and May sort of have kind of gone by pretty quickly. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, we're still missing sports. We still want to give ourselves something to do. And I texted you up, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago and was like, Joe, I'm flirting with this idea of starting a podcast. Are you interested? And you're like, absolutely, let's do it. So I'm excited. We got Tim Kirchin coming on today. Great first guest. I know we're both looking forward to that. So it should be a lot of fun. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, look, we're looking for something to do during this. I mean, you'll get to know us as we go through the episodes of this podcast, but we're both just getting started in the industry. And right. as soon as we got started, we hit the pause button. So we're looking to stay sharp and have some fun. And I mean, look, my, my days have been reduced to basically being a puppy. I wake up, <laughs> I eat, yep. I walk, I take a nap, I eat again, I have second walk, I have another meal somewhere in there, and then I go to sleep. So that's kind of my day. I just went out before this to go get the mail. And that's kind of like one of my more exciting mundane tasks of the day I guess that's like a, a weird way to phrase it exciting but also mundane but like it's those little things that you look forward to now each day like I don't check the weather app on my phone anymore because I lose track of like what day it actually is so uh, that's basically my way of saying oh today's gonna be a good day and today when I went out there beautiful warmth uh, the scent of the freshly cut grass hit me today so it was good it was it's a good start to the day and now I'm here talking to you so it got worse but that's all right <laughs> <laughs> the last time, yeah, I mean, the last time I put on a pair of jeans and, you know, set an alarm was probably quite a while. I am ago. wearing pants. I know a lot of people, like, have questioned whether some people on the podcast are like, <laughs> as I'm, am I, yes. I am wearing pants, but, uh, but no, we had a fun weekend this weekend, at least. Uh, we did. We had the match, which was awesome. I, I was thinking, I mean, of current athletes that are still playing, I know Peyton's not playing, but he's not too far removed from retirement you really couldn't get a much better foursome. I mean, I mean especially name-wise. I mean, look, Phil Mickelson isn't considered among the goats of golf like Tiger right. is, but, like, he's, right. up, like he, he's very well-respected. But as far as the, the quarterbacks, you have 1A and 1B, and a lot of people will argue that, you know, Brady's the goat. Right. But if they had to win a regular season game, they're probably picking Manning. So you've got the two best quarterbacks of all time that, and one of the – if not the greatest golfer of all time in Tiger. I mean, you could debate the classic guys like Jack and whatnot. And then Phil, he's not there in terms of the resume, but he's Phil and everybody loves him. And he's just one of the more popular golfers in the game. So it was an incredible foursome. And for as bad as Brady started on the front nine, he brought it home. I mean, him and Peyton were throwing darts on 16 with the, uh, the hole-in-one challenge hole. Tiger was the farthest from the unbelievable. pin. <laughs> unbelievable. Michelob Ultra would have donated $25 million for a hole-in-one. And I was like, oh, you know what? It's a par three. These guys are competitors. Maybe we'll get some close ones. And then Peyton puts it 17 inches from the hole. That was incredible. Uh, and I thought Barkley on the broadcast was brilliant. He was excellent. Justin Thomas walking the course. Alabama communications major. Well done, JJ. <laughs> that was great. Um, but look, Medalist is a tough golf course. And considering the conditions that they were playing with all in all, I know Brady hit some tough shots. Um, and Manning was looking great because of how well his iron play was, especially. Yeah. There were a couple times he got it in some pretty good spots. I mean, Brady's holding out from the fairway after Chuck called him out. That was right. incredible. And then he underrated because that was so talked about. Um, he was, what, 120 yards out on that? Underrated. Mm -hmm. 
was the the eagle putt that he hit after Phil's incredible bomb then uh, on the back nine. He hit an eagle right. putt from the fringe. I mean, these guys, look, they weren't go- they're not pros, obviously, but they had some incredible shots. Joe, I'm interested what you think because I think golf has an interesting opportunity right now, especially if they resume in the middle of June like they're talking about doing and they're planning on doing. Do you think they maybe go with this idea of having some of the players mic'd up because of how well it was received, because of the amount of maybe non-golf fans that they had before that are just sports fans that want to watch something that, you know, you listen, you, you can get a little snippet already when you were listening to the match of like Phil and what he's talking to with Brady about reading putts and how he's going to hit this chip on the green. I think it could be yeah, it's it could tough. fascinating. I, I feel like it's tough because a lot of the golfers – Look, there's a reason they don't already do it. And the reason right. a lot of the golfers think it draws away from their focus. And um, I, I think you can, you can do it to a point. First of all, the guys got to agree to it. But what you can't do is have the earpiece in like they had during the match where they were talking back to the broadcast. So you could have them mic'd up almost like, you know, right. a quarterback right. on the sidelines or an NFL game. Uh, but you absolutely cannot have the earpiece in because that will not go over well. But as far as having them mic'd up, I mean – one of my favorite parts every year, like when we get to like the Masters and stuff, and um, I'm blanking on which tournament it was now, but it was a couple years ago. Spieth was way off the fairway on top of that hill. I'm, I'm blanking on what tournament it was now, but he was on top of that hill and he hit a crazy shot. And the, the shotgun mics picked up him talking to his caddy and he was just like, oh, I'm just going to go for it. And like, I remember that blew up on Twitter. Right. Um, like that little interaction. So if for some of these guys, we had those little interactions, but for the whole match, because they were mic'd up. I mean, I don't know how much it would harm them to have a little lav mic up on their, on the top of their polo. I mean, obviously not the earpiece in because that could distract them. I know even, even during the match on, on Sunday, Phil uh, ripped it out a couple of times because he was annoyed because of the static, because of the rain. So you can't have the earpiece in, but having them mic'd up wouldn't be a problem. And I, I think, too, you know, you probably wouldn't do it on the Thursday and Friday when these guys are trying to make the cut and they're, you know, trying to compete. But I think if a guy is maybe on a Sunday teen off early morning, maybe you put it on him, see how it works. It could happen. So, I mean, even, even like, you know, uh, I know these guys, they obviously are they're in there for a couple practice rounds before the tournament starts. Let them toy with it during the practice rounds. I know – um, look, even if it doesn't make air anywhere, that could be your guinea pig. Like, all right, maybe Justin Thomas say, cause you know, obviously he's got the, the seemingly the broadcast aspirations now once his playing days are right. Over. Uh, you give him a mic on, on a practice round on a Wednesday and he plays 18 with the mic on and by hole 15, he's like, Oh, I forgot I had a mic on. Once they see that they don't even remember that they have it on, like they might be for it. So it's, it's something to, to think about. But uh, that's more recently in our rearview mirror from this past Sunday. Something that's further in our rearview mirror that we want to talk about before it gets too far in the distance. Yeah. The last dance. Now we're talking a couple Sundays ago. Uh, captive audience. We're all, we were all waiting for that in June. But once this whole pandemic hit, it was the first time that I think I've ever seen like a company almost get like bullied into giving a product sooner. Right. Everybody on Twitter was like, release the last dance, release the last dance. And they released it in April. So we're all thankful for that. And I mean, 5.8 million viewers, I believe, was the average. So almost exactly what the match was this past weekend once the numbers came out, which just shows you like how hungry we were for something to fill the void. Um, I know I enjoyed it. I know you, you enjoyed it. And it, it was definitely something that will be talked about for a long time. I know ESPN is already talking about who's going to be the next subject. They've tossed around Tom Brady, but. Uh, before it gets too far in our rearview mirror, I wanted to get two takeaways from you. 
Sure. One, what was your biggest Jordan-specific takeaway? And then besides that, what was your biggest non-Jordan takeaway? Because it did cover, you know, the Bad Boy Pistons, the Celtics of the 80s, uh, Rodman, Pippen. It covered a lot of other subjects, too. So main Jordan takeaway and main non-Jordan takeaway. I know when we have Tim Kirchner on later, he'll have some thoughts about the, the documentary as well, as he was on SVP every Sunday night after it aired and, and talked a little bit about it with SVP. My biggest Jordan takeaway was probably how he found just the littlest of ways to find the competitive edge. You would think somebody of that greatness would be able to just walk on the floor every night and just know he's the greatest and be able to just motivate himself. But he would make up stories with the Bradford Smith or he would remember things that Brian Russell said to him and use any kind of advantage he could to make sure that he embarrassed the imposing player. I thought that was really fascinating. I thought there was a tweet um, that somebody said, somebody should tell Michael Jordan that the coronavirus, you know, is mad at him or something like that. I thought that was awesome. Um, so that was definitely my biggest Jordan takeaway. My biggest non-Jordan takeaway, um, I think, was Phil Jackson and just how he – was able to keep the whole Bulls team together with all those different personalities with Steve Kerr and Dennis Rodman and Scottie Pippen. It, you know, how he was able to mesh all that with Michael Jordan and understand when guys needed breaks, when they needed a push, when they needed a kick in the butt. Um, Phil deserves a lot more credit than he probably deserves. And I think he's, I mean, that's why Jordan didn't want to play for any other coach because exactly. of how important Phil was. Yeah. Spot on with that. I think my biggest Jordan-specific takeaway, you know, I don't want to get into the whole GOAT debate, him versus LeBron. Every era's got their guy going back, you know, all the way back, Wilt and Kareem and these guys. They've got their era. Um, right. it, it's tough. The game's so different. Um, but when you get into the GOAT debate of, of Jordan and LeBron, uh, a lot of LeBron fans, my brother included, my brother and I have this debate all the time because I'm on the Jordan side. He's on the LeBron side. He's a couple years younger than me. so obviously more so in the LeBron era, at least with me. Like, I vaguely remember Wizards Jordan, which obviously isn't the Michael Jordan, but, like, I saw Michael Jordan. Um, but anyway, my biggest takeaway, a lot of LeBron fans will rely on those early Cleveland years to try to set him apart in the debate. They'll be like, oh, but look at the team that he dragged to the finals when they got swept by the Spurs. Like, he had Mo Williams, Drew, and all these guys. He dragged to 60-win seasons and to right. a finals. I never – I've delved into the history of, of the 90s, Jordan, and, and the, the title teams, and I've watched, obviously, all the highlights. I've gone back and watched full games, partial games. Um, I never went back as far as his early years when the team wasn't good. I know he joked about it being like the traveling cocaine circus in the documentary. Yeah. Uh, I never went that far back, and that's really not something that the LeBron fans can really hold over him because – he was carrying that team, and the, that whole series, his second season, I believe it was, when he broke his foot and they, um, they barely got in the playoffs as like a 30-52 and 52 team, and they went up against that Celtics team that had four Hall of Famers on it. He averaged like 50 points in the three-game sweep that they had. They lost in a three-game sweep, but he averaged over 50 and pushed, I think, two of the games to overtime. So he did similar things – to LeBron in that aspect, I mean, his early years before the 90s started, before, uh, you know, they became the Bulls and won the titles, he was averaging 
35, 32.5. His rookie year, 28.2. That season when he had this, like the, I think it was a 17 minute per game minute restriction, he averaged 22 points a game still. So right. uh, he still was doing incredible things when he didn't have the talent around him. So I, that was something that kind of was kind of eye opening for me. Like I never went back to that Michael Jordan, the, the Jordan before the titles. Um, it was just kind of always something that in a debate with a LeBron fan, I always kind of gave him, I was like, yeah, you know, LeBron did some great things with nobody around him, but Jordan did too. And that was kind of eye opening for me. Um, biggest non-Jordan takeaway then Steve Kerr. Like I respected the hell out of him before that, because I, I thought he did an incredible job with the Warriors. I know everybody got on the Warriors case, especially after they added KD. Um, and they got on Kerr's case about it as well. Like, Oh, how much is he actually doing? I mean, he's got, Steph Clay, Dre, and, and KD. Like, he doesn't actually have to coach. to just go out and play. Like, no, like, there's still a lot that goes into it for him from an X's and O's standpoint, but more so, it's managing all those personalities. I mean, we saw this year when KD left that the personalities weren't meshing that well. So right. he got them the two titles, almost effortless titles. I mean, they went 15 and one uh, in, in that, uh, th- that final title run. Uh, for him to have put that team together the way he did, uh, it respect seeing the, the documentary made me respect him more because like you were mentioning before, I saw what Phil Jackson had to go through with that Bulls team. And that's probably the same thing, maybe to a lesser extent because you didn't have Dennis Rodman going to Vegas in the middle of the season and WWE in the middle of the Yeah, season. things a little different. And maybe to a lesser extent, but Steve Kerr still had to do a lot of these things with these Warriors. And uh, besides that, I never knew the story about his father, Either not. which was – fascinating to hear heartbreaking to hear and to to then hear that and then think about all that Steve Kerr has done since then it happened when he was in college so to go through his college career to to then be a very solid pro that won multiple rings to then be a coach who's now won multiple rings um that's that's tough I can't even imagine that and uh, my respect for him went through the roof for both of those reasons seeing what Phil had to go through and now knowing that Kerr probably had to go through those same things as the coach but then also you know, seeing that he had to go through that heartbreak and, and deal with that and still was able to become what he became as a player and then as a coach. And that's a great point you brought. That was one of those parts in the documentary. You were wondering how they were going to wrap it up with nine and 10 because they ended eight with Indiana. And you're like, all right, well, this is the series right before Utah. They don't have like much stuff that they can use for the last two hours. And then they kind of drop that bombshell on everyone. And that kind of stole everything away. I got to say, too, you said everybody at the beginning was so starving for content and sports and kind of bullied ESPN into producing this for the last dance to over-deliver, for it to oh, yeah. exceed expectations, I think says how impressive of a documentary it was and how important it was because of what an icon Jordan is and how guys like us never got to see him play on the Bulls. We heard stories. We, you know – we based our reasoning of why he's the GOAT off highlights that we've seen, what we've heard. But now to hear it from his own words, guys he played against, his coaches, see some more video, I think it was just all beautifully well done. Look, it was a propaganda machine for Michael Jordan to remind people who he is. Right. And it worked because that was a flawless documentary. And uh, I think there's a lot of people who are younger than us. I'm 22, you're 23? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of people younger than us, the 17 and 18-year-olds who are totally squarely in the LeBron era. Like I said, I mean, me and you saw Wizards Jordan, which wasn't really Jordan, but still him. 
Um, but the younger people who were squarely in LeBron's era who watched it, uh, they, you know, they, they have some, some different ideas now. And actually, my brother, like I said, totally big LeBron fan, a um, couple years younger than me. He actually refused to watch the documentary. He was in denial about it. He did not watch a single really? he, So So I, that, that was just him, I think, being in denial that if he watched it, his opinion would change a little bit, and he didn't want that to happen. So um, we have our opinions. I know our guest coming up is going to have his opinions on The Last Dance as well. Uh, so we'll take a quick break here, and then we'll welcome in Tim Kirchin, who will surely wow us, one of the best storytellers in all of baseball, and that's including players and writers. So we're excited to have him on for this first podcast. Joining us now, very special guest, baseball writer and analyst for ESPN, Tim Kirchin. Tim, thanks so much for being here and joining us. How are you? Uh, I'm fine. I'm healthy. I'm safe. That's, I guess, all that matters. Everyone at home is healthy and safe, and I hope you guys are too. All good on my end, and that's obviously the best thing for all of us to hear right now is that you're that you're all doing well. Yep, all good on mine as well. Glad you're here. You're doing well. What kinds of things have you been doing to pass the time during quarantine? Well, I took on a writing project in March where I've written every day starting March the 26th. I've written basically my version of this date in baseball history, and, I, and I've had accompanying video with it. So I've written every single day from March 26th, which was supposed to be opening day. I've already written through June the 15th. I hope we don't even get to that point because this series will end as soon as we start to play or at least go to spring training again. So I did this to keep myself engaged. Um, I don't have too many hobbies. I'm really bad around the house. So I just figured the best thing to do is to stay as active as possible. And in doing so, hopefully bring a smile to the faces of our best baseball fans who don't have a whole lot to smile about right now so i've been uh, actually exceptionally busy but it's been uh it's been great fun well i've been enjoying the baseball fix whenever it's on so you're, you're at least bringing a smile to these two faces over here so uh another thing that people have been trying to do to bring the smile to people and keep them engaged was the last dance and pj and i were talking about that before you hopped on and we know that uh you you're a big fan of that and you were on svp every week and you guys talked briefly about it after his uh panels each week with jackie mcmullen and and Michael Wilbon. So what were just your general takeaways from the last dance before that becomes too far in the rearview mirror? Well, it was a tremendous series, uh, really in-depth, really honest. The video was tremendous. And, you know, I didn't watch every minute of it, but I watched a lot of it. And I left thinking that Michael Jordan was even more of a killer than I thought he was. And that is a compliment. I think his greatest trait beyond his unbelievable athleticism is that sorry he just wants to tear your throat out and beat you no matter what bill russell who probably isn't as charitable to today's players as he maybe he could be because bill russell is one of the great players of all time once described michael jordan he just said well he he just shows up and kicks your ass and that's who he is and that's what that series told me again and again but I didn't need to see it all to realize just how competitive he was. I'd heard all those some of those stories from basketball. I even heard some of those stories when he played baseball for a year. Yeah, like, I mean, different viewing it through my lens and PJ's lens because the Jordan that we saw and, like, remember is, like, the couple of years of a Wizards Jordan. So to, like, actually get to see it 
and and kind of go through each episode was tremendous for us. We were talking about it before, and honestly, I don't know that any documentary could ever top that sports-wise, but uh, we wanted to ask you the question, if they were to do something about that for a baseball player, who could you see them making that documentary about? And then also, in addition to that, is there any baseball player that sort of mirrors his competitiveness that you've seen through the years? Well, Cal Ripken is the most wildly competitive person I've ever met more than a few times. I only met Jordan once or twice. Uh, John Smoltz, crazy competitor. Justin Verlander, they're all the same. They all have to be that way if they're going to be successful on that level. Because every day they run into people who are just as talented as they are. But I could tell you hours of stories about what Cal Ripken did uh, how competitive he was at everything that he did. Joe Orsalak, who was a teammate of his, told me years ago, he said, I didn't realize this, but Orsalak was like a great ping pong player, a three-state champion when he was like a teenager. So he recently played Ripken in ping pong, and he beat him 24 games in a row. <laughs> and Ripken would not leave the house until he won. And Orsalak told me, he won the 25th game at 2 o'clock in the morning, and then he went home. That's uh, how they all are. That's how Jordan is, Tiger Woods, Cal Ripken, John Smoltz, Justin Verlander. Name just about any level but player on that level, and they all have a competitive nature that, frankly, the rest of us can't even understand. Incredible. Tim, now that we've been without the game for about two months or so, which aspect of baseball have you missed the most? Well, I miss being at the ballpark. There's no substitute for being at the ballpark. I mean, I love being at home with games on 24 hours a day. I love it. I love it having it in the background when I'm working or cooking or whatever I'm doing. But there's no substitute for actually being at the games, talking to the players, and watching them play. And I've really, really missed that because I've spent the last 41 years at a major league ballpark. But the other thing I really miss – are the box scores in the morning. It's been so big a part of my life since I was eight years old, waking up in the morning and looking at the box scores while you eat breakfast. I don't get to do that anymore, neither does anyone else. And I really miss that because that used to set my day. I used to feel like I understood what kind of what happened yesterday just by devouring the box scores. And without them, uh, it's a little bit of an empty feeling every day. Now, the million-dollar question, obviously, people want to know, will there be a season? Won't there be a season? I know people's opinions of it change every day. Um, as of today, this moment, what do you think? Do you think there's going to be a season? I want you to note my hesitation. Yes, I think we're going to have a season. I think both sides are going to – all sides are going to get together here and say anything is better than nothing. Because right now, it's just not working for anyone. I think there's a way. If they can handle the financial part of it, which will not be easy. If they can handle the, you know, the quarantine and the testing and the scheduling and the where are we going to play, those are enormous roadblocks. So if we don't play, I would not be surprised. However, I have sensed late last week, leading into this week, that there's some people out there who really think this is going to happen. One way or another, these two sides are going to say, well, there's so much money to be lost here and, and a truncated season playing some weird rules and everything else. 
is not ideal, but the world has changed. We're in a different world now, and everyone's going to have to really be flexible. And at least late last week, I really sensed that both sides are going to come together and figure out how to get this done. And then, of course, they're going to have to get help from local municipalities, governors, federal government, everything to allow this to happen. So it's very, very complicated. But needless to say, this is a really important week. Of course. And one of the things that's been on my mind, obviously get through this issue first, but it, it started to creep up in the back of my mind. There's been these murmurs about how ugly the labor dispute could get in 2021 between both sides. What impact do you think the current issue going on in negotiations and the current hostility maybe between the MLB and MLBPA, how could that impact the 2021 negotiations when they get to that point? Yeah, that's why this is such a critical time, because if somehow these two sides can get together, unions and owners, and figure out how to make a financial split here to make everyone relatively happy, I think that will be great towards, you know, developing some goodwill before the 2020 season and 2021 season ends and they have to negotiate a new CBA. However, if they run into all sorts of problems, which they already have with salary caps and revenue sharing and all this stuff, it could really set a bad tone for where we're headed with the CBA. That's why it's so important for everyone to be adaptable and flexible and say, okay, this looks like a salary cap, but it's only going to be for a few months or so. And then we'll go back to the regular rules and the regular shaping of the game when it comes to the economics. But that's where that flexibility has to come in. Otherwise, it could lead to really bad things in a couple of years. If play were to resume, do you think there would be an asterisk over the team's World Series champion, the fact that the regular season would be cut in half at 82 games? Do you think people would treat them as the true champion that season? I don't think we have a choice. I think we have to treat them as the true champion. And even though 82 games isn't close to 162, 162 is the measure. Sparky Anderson used to always tell me the reason we play 162 is because it's so long. There are no excuses after 162. No one can say, hey, we ran out of time. Well, after 82, it's not the same. However, if we're going to be all in this together, we're going to have to say whoever wins the World Series is going to be the World Series champion. Now, will there be an imaginary asterisk over it? Of course there will be, as will the stats and everything else from this season. This is going to be, if it's played, the strangest season of all time. But I don't think it's fair to have a team you know, go through 82 games and then uh, just an incredible grind in October, win the World Series, and then say, all right, we're not giving you anything for this. I covered the 81 season. I covered the 81 strike. They played over 100 games that year, and the Dodgers were the world champs, and they deserved it. And there's no asterisk over that. We play 82. I say it's okay. If somehow, miraculously, we end up with a 40-game season, I'm not suggesting that's going to happen. A March Madness race to the finish, uh, then we're going to have to reconsider. Of course. Now, looking at how good the winter meetings was this past season and, you know, some of the biggest names in baseball, Garrett Cole going from the Astros to the Yankees, Mookie Betts, Red Sox to Dodgers, Anthony Rendon went out west to the Angels. Which of those new players were you most excited to see on their new team? 
Well, Garrett Cole is breathtaking these days. I mean, I every time I watch him pitch, there's a chance I might see something I've never seen before. That's how good he is. Last year, he struck out a batter in 73 consecutive innings. Think about that for Incredible. a second. We went back and looked up through 1969, and Pedro Martinez at 49 consecutive innings was the second best, 73 consecutive innings with at least one strikeout. So he joining that team, I think, was one thing I, I really wanted to watch. But given where we are now, the Mookie Betts situation is even more fascinating, given how great he is, given he's the last piece the Dodgers needed. I think he makes the Dodgers the best team in baseball. And how much will we see of him? Plus, he's a free agent at the end of the season, and it is possible. We don't play any games this year that Mookie Betts could be traded to the Dodgers, not play one game with them, and then leave via free agency. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the Dodgers are going to look at him and say he's our long-term guy. We didn't bring him in here for one year. We have the money to afford him, so I think he stays there. But – there's a chance he, he might not, and that's what makes that so interesting. So many moving parts, and then even with, like, small market teams, will they sell, will they not, depending on the financial ramifications. So there's a, there's a ton to watch, and I just hope we have games. Uh, we'll cross those bridges with contracts when we get there. But I um, wanted to take you back a second. The other night on SVP, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this is what you had said, went back and looked at it, uh, you had mentioned that the Cardinals-Rangers World Series game was the best one that you had seen, but not the best baseball game. What do you consider to be the best game? Yeah, I think I said that David Freeze game, Rangers-Cardinals, uh, was the most remarkable thing I've ever gotcha. seen. But that doesn't make it the greatest game. Uh, boy, there are a lot of there. Eight, game <laughs> of five in 1986, Angels and Red Sox, the David Henderson game, that might be the the purest, best baseball game I've ever seen. But given 2000, I mean, 1991, Jack Morris's one to nothing shutout in 10 innings in game seven of the World Series, I think that raises to the greatest game I've ever seen, given the stakes of the matter. Now, the game seven of the 2016 World Series, which we are rebroadcasting tonight, I will be on that rebroadcast. Uh, that's about as good as it gets, too. And game seven in 2001, Mariano Rivera getting beaten by the, uh, the Diamondbacks. Nobody saw that coming. So out of that group, I mean, those are some pretty darn good games. Uh, yeah, that, that 2016 game seven. Now, granted – I've got a lot smaller of a sample size, not to make you feel old, but I've got a lot smaller sample size. That one's, that one's my favorite game. Um, I've, I'm definitely going to be watching that tonight. I was excited for it when I saw that it was going to be the rebroadcast. But um, we're hoping as we get more guests, as this podcast goes along, you've got the honor of being number one. Uh, we're hoping to end them all the same way with like a quick rapid fire round and a, a trivia question. Before I get to that, one more thing I just wanted to, to throw out there. PJ and I, and everybody else, I think, would agree. You're one of the best storytellers in baseball, all of sports. We were just hoping that you could tell us one of your favorite stories. Open-ended, totally up to you, but just one of your favorite stories. Uh, well, I have, <laughs> I have a million of them. Uh, I, since I, I teased you with Cal Ripken, I'll, I'll tell you the story. Just try to picture this now, his competitive nature. When they used to play at the Metrodome, in Minneapolis. After 
after infield, back when we took infield, he invented this game to see how many, how many strides it would take him to run the steps that led from the dugout to the level where the clubhouse is. It was like eight steps, giant landing, eight steps, giant landing, eight steps. And miraculously, Ripken in full uniform could make it to the top in six, six strides. It was impossible that anybody could do that. So one night, Rene Gonzalez, a teammate, also did it in six strides. And Ripken said, oh, wait a minute, I can't be the co-champion of the game that I invented. So he went back down on the field. Now we're 15 minutes from the start of a major league game, and he runs those steps, and he makes it in five strides, not six. So he is the champion of his own game again, and all was right in the world because Cal Ripken won again. That's incredible. I, to think of, you know, <laughs> how competitive these guys are and again back to the last dance like it's not just their game it's every little detail in life and that's what that's what makes them what they are in the end um but to that little quick segment i tease we call it the swift seven we've got seven questions as quickly as you can answer them a couple words or less it's rapid fire i'll start it off question one favorite non-baseball movie uh uh well field of dreams is uh a few good men Number two, favorite This Is Sports Center commercial? Uh, Car Ravage with, uh, with all the, the uh, bugs flying around. Uh, number three, steroid error players. Do they or don't they belong in the Hall of Fame? They do. I vote for Bonds and Clemens every year. Number but not four. all of them. That's a long story. Gotcha. <laughs> number four, <laughs> uh, favorite city to visit on the road? Boston. Number five, favorite ballpark food? The Brats in Milwaukee, secret sauce. Favorite non-baseball sporting event that you've ever been to? Uh, Celtics, Lakers, NBA Finals, mid-80s. And lastly, number seven, who has the better Baltimore name, Mark Trumbo or Joe Flacco? <laughs> <laughs> Joe Flacco does because he's got an O in his first and last name. And Scott Van Pelt makes me laugh with that name more than any. <laughs> I, I couldn't resist. I had to, had to get it on there. So thank you for that. And we'll end, Tim, lastly, with the trivia question. Um, we'll do this with all of our guests. We thought we got a pretty good one for you. So we'll give you 90 seconds on the clock as, as I give that to you. So hold on one second. 90 seconds right. or three strikes. All right. 90 if seconds I don't know or three. It, I'm not giving you 90. If I don't know it, I'm going to tell you. We're not wasting 90 seconds. Gotcha. All right. So there are only three players in MLB history that are in the 500 home run club to hit 100 or more home runs with three different teams. Can you name those players? And clock starts now. All right. 100 or more home runs with three different teams. In the 500 home run club. I see. Okay. Uh, Gary Sheffield? Sheffield is not one of them. Oh. Um, all right. I'm going to miss. I'm going to do really badly on this. <laughs> um, how about 
No, that's not right. God, I'm really embarrassing myself. I'm going to have to cut this out because I've just lost all my credibility. Uh, God, this is a pretty easy one, I think. How about Jim Tomey? Tomey is one, one of them. That is correct. Okay. Uh, 45 seconds. Oh, God, this is so bad. How about uh, Frank Robinson? No, Frank is not one no, of them. No, not one of them. I knew that. Uh, I strike two. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to strike out badly here. Uh, how about uh, how about Eddie Murray? No, uh, not Eddie Murray. Eddie Murray, that was a bad guess. Um, uh, I should know this off the top of my head. about Reggie Jackson? Reggie Jackson is one. one. The 90 seconds have reached, but if you can get the last one. We'll give it, give it to you. <laughs> it's the All most. Right. I, I give up. You guys got me. I'm, I'm, um, my mind is somewhere else. Who's the third? You're going to kick yourself. Alex Rodriguez. Oh, sure. Well, <laughs> all right. All right. You need to cut that out. It's too embarrassing. <laughs> All right, Tim, we can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this with us. We just saw you on TV 10 minutes ago and to hop on right here, especially to help us get this off the ground. I don't know what PJ had mentioned to you when he had reached out, but we're looking for something to do in quarantine and stay sharp. And we just decided to start this. So it means a lot that you took the time. And from one fellow Terp to another, thank you very much. All right. Well, go Terps. Talk to you guys later. Thanks, Tim. Have a good one. Thank you. And that was Tim Kirchin once again. We cannot thank him enough for coming on here with us. First podcast, and, you know, we were he's a little bit – He's the best. And we were a little bit yeah. worried, you know, what we could kind of do to kind of help get this thing up and running. And seeing Tim Kirchin's name attached to podcast episode one is going to be a big help. Doesn't one hurt him. One of the nicest guys. One of the <laughs> nicest is. guys in the business. And that's like, you know, I keep harping on SVP's show because just Kirchin's on it a lot, but – I feel like he closes out every single segment with Kirchin saying that he's one of the nicest guys. And it's absolutely true. It could not have been a a better way to kind of kickstart this podcast. Totally agree. He, I mean, you know, we're, we're a couple of kids just trying to make a name for ourselves. He obviously doesn't have to help us. I mean, he's on ESPN and stuff and doing his own thing, but just speaks to the kind of guy that he is, that he would take time out of his day to help talk baseball with us and, Hopefully he had half as much fun as we did asking him questions. Of course, of course. That was, that was a lot of fun. We'll, we'll have to let him live down that trivia thing. I know he was, he was upset and embarrassed was by bummed, it. But look, yeah. when you asked me that question too, like I, I got Tomei, I got A-Rod. I would never have thought of, of Reggie. Yeah, so Reggie's the, the fact that he pull. got The fact that he got the Reggie one before the other ones actually kind of impressed me because I, that's the one where like people forget like, I forgot the Angels, so I, right. people completely forget that team. And that actually kind of inspired me for the trivia question that I'm going to ask you later on in our, okay. uh, later on in our, our show here. So, but just to touch on a couple of things though, that uh, Tim had mentioned, as far as the asterisk over potential World Series winning this year, first of all, World Series and asterisk has been tossed around a lot recently with the Astros. So, separate issue. But um, I don't – if they went 82 games and the – possible proposed 14 team playoff i don't think there's any any asterisk next to it like sure is it not totally representative like a normal year is absolutely not i mean last year you know at the 82 game mark the eventual world series champion washington nationals would not have been in the playoffs last year and that's why you play 162 
so is it going to be totally representative? No. Is 82 games still enough to kind of figure out who's who and then get into the grind of the playoffs, like Tim was saying, to crown a worthy champion? Absolutely. And I mean, every year in baseball, there's, there's a surprise or two. So sure, there might be a surprise in that 14 teams. But at the end of the day, the cream's going to rise to the top. And the team he mentioned, the Dodgers, like, I can't imagine a team like that not making it just because it's only 82 games. Right. So the, the best teams will still make it. And for me, there's no asterisk. Like he said, though, if it's like a quick little March Madness-style sprint to a trophy, I'm putting zero stock in that, unless my Mets win, that I'm claiming it forever. But <laughs> uh, it doesn't really mean as much if it were something like that. But 82 games for me, like, you take what you can get, and for me, that's enough. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Nats because that was really who I was thinking of when we, I asked the question and when we were talking about the 82 games because they were 19 and 31 in their first, you know, 50 games and they would not have made the playoffs had it been this 82 game exactly. season. But I'm really interested to see if they end up playing 82 games, the strategy behind these games because managers and teams know that every game is twice as important because True. you have twice as less games. So I bet a lot of teams go to four-man rotations instead of five-man rotations. I bet maybe they bring in the bullpen a lot quicker than they normally would, especially since those guys are much more healthy and rested than they would be. And it'll be interesting to see now with both teams having DHs how that's going to that. play a factor. <laughs> I do too. I think once you'd have, you know, the yeah. NFL pitcher and stuff. If it's, but, look, if they, if they have to do what they were saying about, like um, – you play so like the NL East would play a lot of games against the AL East where there's a lot of just like regionalized interleague play like all right I get it but if they're able to play like sort of just like a toned down schedule I don't it's just a way for them to kind of bridge the gap to saying all right we're just going to go with the universal DH and I don't want the DH so I'm just partial to not having it because I love pitchers hitting and I love the strategy of like you know fifth inning bases loaded two outs pitchers at like 80 pitches he's due up do you take him out already or do you let him go out for his one more inning like I enjoy the strategy part of the game but that's a topic for another day um there's going to be a lot of different different uh wheels turning for the managers though for, yes. for sure I mean the four-man rotation really sticks out as like a main thing that a lot of teams will go to it's funny on one hand you've had teams who for years have been talking about going to a six-man rotation to help preserve arms and now all of a sudden you're talking about a four-man rotation right. because it's an 82 game sprint to the finish and everything's important so and you know a lot like, of those catchers that would get that off day on that sunday day they game, not. maybe they might not so there's a lot of different things that are gonna are gonna play into it and those division games as big as they are already are going to be even that much more and it's, it'll be a lot of fun yeah and that's why for me there's no asterisk because it's not like 82 games and now like the level of competition is also going down sure there's fewer games but the level of competition is going to skyrocket because every game is that much more important so you're going to be getting great games that you you know maybe you wouldn't get in august maybe there's a a tuesday seven o'clock start mets marlins where the guys are packing it in and they don't really care whereas now that game is incredibly important so you know you have to take everything seriously the players have to take everything seriously and overall, it ends up being a better product. Now, obviously, uh, again, you still wish you have the 162, but you take what you can get. And that brings me to another point that he was saying. At some point here, they've got to figure something out. It would, be, it would be catastrophic for the league that's already lagged way behind the NBA in popularity. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, there's really, not, there's really no, nothing else to parse through that. Like, it's yeah. a, just a straight-up fact. If they don't play, it's going to be catastrophic to them. So. 
hopefully they don't punt. Hopefully they can figure things out. I know it's supposed to be this is the week. It's supposed to be like a big week for them as far as negotiations and figuring things out. So we'll see how they go. That's, that's all we can do now is sit and wait, as we have been for a couple of months. Now there was the big news that came out today of Gary Bettman was going to make an announcement about you know, the NHL and what they were going to do with resuming their season. But there was really no new information that we hadn't already known about. They're going to have the 2014 playoff, it sounds like, if they resume. They're still not sure on dates of training camps, when games would resume and all that. So with what we do know, especially the 2014 playoff bracket, do you like it? Do you also think that a true champion can be determined by this. Do you think the long layoff is going to hurt those higher seeded teams that'll be waiting and waiting and waiting while these teams are getting their rhythm back? We see it all the times in other sports. Sometimes sure. those teams that are playing from the beginning get on that hot streak and it takes them all the way. Yeah, I mean, I love the format. I think it's probably the best way they can do this instead of having to, you know, get 31 teams to play their final dozen games you know, get rid of the teams that absolutely had no chance. 24 is a good number because all but one team in that 24 was within a few points of a playoff spot where they very feasibly could have made it by finishing the regular season. The only team that is like way lagged behind would be the Montreal Canadiens. They'd get in as team number 24 and they were a full eight points at a playoff spot. So they're the only team that really benefits tremendously that you could honestly say, Without a doubt, they were not making the playoffs before this all happened. Uh, so it doesn't really cheapen it for me because all these teams were fighting for a playoff spot anyway. And the 2014 bracket just is like a quicker way for them to just kind of figure out who the next 16 will be. Um, and as far as, you know, all right, in, in baseball, as far as getting surprises who might not have otherwise been there, or basketball, maybe, you know, the Nets, KD and Kyrie come back and, and there's that whole thing. So there's more upsets than you normally see. You see upsets in hockey every year. So every year. If, if all of a sudden, you know, the Rangers who are going to, I believe, be an 11 seed in the East that were a couple of points out of a wild card spot, uh, if all of a sudden they turn around and beat the Hurricanes, who they would be matched up with in the first round, again, who they were fighting for a wild card spot with. So it's not like, you know, the Hurricanes were well clear of the Rangers. If they were to beat them, and then as an 11 seed, they were to come out and beat, you know, the two-seeded Lightning or something. I mean, it's really not that crazy, considering last year we saw a Lightning team tie the regular season wins record and then get swept by an eight seed. Right. So you see upsets all the time in hockey. The Kings won the Cup as an eight seed. Uh, these lower-seeded teams make runs almost every single year. Last year, the Blues went on a run as a lower-seeded team and won the Cup. You see it all the time in hockey. The President's Trophy winner almost never wins the Cup anyway. No, which it's, is incredible. Exactly. 3-1 leads in hockey in series when a team's up 3-1 means, means nothing. It was a huge deal in 2016 when the Warriors beat the Thunder and then ended up losing to the Cavs by the same, the same right. situation in the finals because it just doesn't happen in basketball but in hockey it happens all the time the rangers did it back-to-back -back years they did it against the, the penguins when they made the cup run and then the following year they did it against the capitals it happens all the time in hockey 3-0 comebacks come back happen all the time in hockey that year that the kings made it two and won the cup as an eight seed they were down three games to none in the first round so crazy things happen all the time in the stanley cup playoffs so i, I don't think you could say it a stanley cup winner would be cheapened because you're going to have more upsets than normal 
you really can't have more upsets than normal because upsets happen regularly in the sport. So that's the one of all the sports looking to come back now. That's the one sport where absolutely nothing will be cheapened. And it's going to be great because playoff hockey is some of the most entertaining sporting events of every calendar year to watch. And now you're telling me that you're going to give me eight extra teams. And hypothetically, if every series went five games of the play-ins, you're giving me an extra 20 NHL games in the playoffs. That's what I'm saying. That's awesome. To me, the best two playoffs in sports are March Madness and playoff hockey. So if you want to add more games, if you want to add a few more teams, then I'm all for it, you know. At the end of the day, I agree with you. I think the best teams will separate themselves. Sometimes in hockey, the best team doesn't always win. But, you know, the team that's battle-tested and does what's necessary to win in the playoffs usually does. And I even saw at one point there was a proposed logo or they were talking about it on Twitter where it was going around where there was this idea of putting all 30, uh, 31 teams in the playoffs and letting about them that. go at it. a little it. different. So we've talked to MLB. We've talked to NHL. Lastly, NBA. And – the players really want to play. They've made it clear that they want to come back. Sounds like Adam Silver and the NBA front office having this idea of playing the, re- the remainder of the season in Orlando. Joe, you personally, do you think they should punt on the season or do you think it's worth salvaging? I mean, I think they got to salvage it. NBA and NHL, once things stopped, like I always felt like whenever the time would come, if every first and foremost before anything else, Health protocols got to be in place. It's got to be totally safe. If they can guarantee safety, which is an if, but if they can guarantee it, like Germany has with the Bundesliga, they've already been going for a couple of weeks, then for me it's a no-brainer to, to finish that off. The downside is maybe you're starting next season a little bit later, but you almost treat it as a, as a lockout year where games started on Christmas Day a few years back, and you just go from there. If you've got a kind of – go a couple of years until you catch up where like maybe next season is end of November until July instead of the normal October to June. And then you slowly incrementally get back to normal. You'll figure it out. But to, to go that long, I think even LeBron said like to go that long and not crown a champion. Now he has incentive to say that because father time is, is coming for him and sure. he's still Once trying to catch Jordan. Yeah. He's still doing for Kobe true too, but he's trying to catch Jordan and, and get his name in that debate. So do you really think that the game's biggest star is going to want to punt on the season? Absolutely not. And that's why all of the, the sports biggest stars want to do it. If you, if you were telling me that playing compromises their safety, punt, wait till next year. But if they can guarantee the safety, which I trust Adam Silver as probably the best commissioner in sports to do, if they can guarantee that, then it's a no-brainer for me to finish it out. Next season, if it gets delayed, it gets delayed. I don't really care finish the book on this season, and then go from there. To me, what's going to be real interesting, especially in the NBA, you see a bunch, is that the veteran-led teams are normally the top seeds, right? In the West, you got the Lakers, the Clippers, you got the Rockets. Uh, All these teams have veterans. Milwaukee, I mean, they have some too. They're obviously led by Giannis, who's got some fresh legs. Boston has some fresh legs. So definitely they're a little younger on the East side. But the West will be pretty interesting when you're preparing for a season and you're getting in a rhythm, especially with your teammates in your team, and you get that long layoff, could you imagine the Lakers having to play like a young Memphis team with tough. John Morant and Jaron Jackson? You know what I'm saying? Where it those is, guys tough, can go tomorrow. On the flip side, you know, I've started to like see people kind of prop up this idea on Twitter. There's also going to be a gap because 
the league's wealthier players, the LeBron Jameses of the world and, and like that, they all have courts or something at home. So I get what you're saying like about that, but I don't know if – now, I've got no, no knowledge off the top of my head, but like do the John Morants and Jaron Jacksons who are just getting in the league, just starting to buy their, their new homes and stuff, do they have full courts basically at their house that they can play with like a LeBron James and these guys who have made hundreds of million dollars already? Um, I mean – they, they've said LeBron is, again, they've said you don't necessarily know that it's true, but he's posted workout videos and he looks pretty damn good. Um, he hasn't missed a beat because he's been able to work out at home and stuff. So obviously there's going to be a difference in getting to, up to playing speed, but or staying in shape. Those veterans maybe have um, just accommodations at home that the younger guys don't. So that might counterbalance it. But I wouldn't want to, you know, be a, a team that's not got to go play Zion and, and a Pelicans team that was starting to get hot. So there, there's that aspect to it. But again, there's no perfect solution. So sorry to the higher seed teams. You've got to kind of deal with it and just got to try to push through it. But um, I think they're going to play. I don't necessarily think they should. I think, too, because there's all this talk of the second wave coming back in the winter and they might not be able to start the following season. So to crown somebody. So we'll see. It's going to be. The, but the flip side to that, though, the flip side to my, my counter argument, whenever somebody's brought that up, is. Would you rather not finish this season, be able to start next season sooner to avoid the second wave, but then not know what lies beyond? Because who knows what happens? What if all of a sudden you're getting into trouble next year where you can't even finish next year? Now you've got two years without a title. So I would rather finish this season because it was already 93% done. And then if worse comes to worse, hopefully not, you know, especially with already all else that's, kind of we've seen the the negative sides of this going on right now hopefully there's not another wave but in the event there was don't play next season or or mm-hmm. start next season way later you know there's for me if you never start it you could almost look back on it historically and say yeah there was a strike that year you know as far as like mentally justifying it right but it's tough to play 93 percent of a season and not finish it so if you're asking me would you rather finish this season at the expense of next season, yeah, I'd rather I'd rather see the last chapter to this book written and next year's book not even start uh, than which to is how I un- think unfinished. they see it. I think exactly. that's how they see it exactly. and why they'll probably finish it. Baseball's right. the one. Sorry to cut you off. Baseball's the only one that I really am not confident in. I'm confident the NBA and NHL, if they can guarantee safety, will go ahead and crown a champion. Um, but baseball, I don't know because. The difference is NHL with 24 teams, NBA, however they want to work it. You're talking 24 teams initially for the NHL, right? So if, the, if it's only the first, uh, first 16 teams are playing a five-game series, that'll take about 10 days. So after 10 days, you're already going down to 16 teams. Give it two more weeks, and you're going down then to eight teams. So three right. weeks into this, you've gone from 24 down to eight. So you're not asking all these players on all these teams to just like sequester away from their families for months, except for the teams that make it far to the conference finals and then the Stanley cup final or vice versa, the NBA finals, aside from the teams that make it far, everybody else is going home right away. Baseball on the other hand, it's tough because you, besides all the labor disputes and, and figuring out the money you're asking players in all likelihood to leave their families for three, four months. NHL, NBA, they don't have that problem. Baseball has a little bit of an idea about what South Korea is doing. They can kind of use that. And it's the most spread out of these sports we've been talking about. 
NHL for me going into it is the sport I would least expect to come back, which is why I'm surprised they are a little bit just because of how much hitting there is on the ice, how close those guys are when they're sitting, waiting to come onto the ice on the boards. But, you know, as long as everybody gets tested, you brought up the Bundesliga a lot. You say it's going really well. Yeah. As long as they have a plan, they stick Knock to it. Knock on wood. I mean, it's been three, two and a right. half weeks so far. They haven't had any issues. So, um, that's, as long that's as they a have a plan start. and stick to it, yeah, then hopefully they can keep everybody safe. Um, all right, Joe, so we're going to do a segment here to pretty much wrap up the shows. We're going to end every show with trivia questions for each other. But right before that, we're going to do the Where Would You Go, Joe segment. And we got three choices for you. We're going to do on this day in sports history. Our episode is going to drop Thursday, May 28th. So I found three days in sports gone through. And I'm going to see which one, if you had a ticket to all three of these games, which one would you choose? All right, I'm in. Let's see. So answer choice A is Warriors at OKC Western Conference Final Game 6 in 2016. Okay. Warriors are down 3-2. Game is in Oklahoma City. That's the year that the Warriors I remember won this game very games. well. That was the Clay Thompson well. game. Yep, this is the Clay game. Answer choice B is King at, Kings at Blackhawks 2014, Game 5, Western Conference Final. Kings are up 3-1 in the series with a chance to advance the Stanley Cup. And then answer choice C is Red Wings at Penguins. That was Game 3 mm. of the Stanley Cup Final in, 28, great in 2008. Great series. That was Crosby's first cup appearance. And the Wings were up 2-0 in the series going back to Pittsburgh. You know, the Igloo at the time would be absolutely jumping with their yeah. first Stanley Cup game in a while. So I you got three choices there. One of my favorite, like, sad hockey facts is that Marion Hossa was on the losing end of both of those back-to-back -back series that the Penguins and Red Wings won. Oh, wow. With one yeah. team, lost, jumped ship to the other side of that rivalry and then lost the following year. So he, uh, both years, was on the ice in that same matchup watching the winning team lift the trophy. Um, two great series. Both of them came down to last-second sprawling saves by uh, the goaltenders for both teams. So great series. Game three, though, doesn't do it for me. Uh, right. But I'm thinking about, I mean, as soon as you said the OKC uh, Warriors game, that, I, I knew right away that was the clay game. Uh, I probably have to go with that one. I mean, that was just... That, that run was incredible. I remember once I saw them go down 3-1, to one, I was like, are they really going to not even make the finals with the 73-win season? I the mean, it's, it's one thing to get there and lose, especially the way they did after being up 3-1, to one, but, like, you at least got to make it there. Yeah. If you were going to set this, the wins record, at least get there. I mean, right. sure, they should have won it if they wanted to truly surpass the Bulls, but – for them to have not even gotten there that year would have been catastrophic and just one of the, unfortunately, biggest failures in sports history. Okay, it's still a failure that they didn't win that year, but it would have been way worse of a failure if they would have not even made it to the finals. So all the suspense I remember going into that game, and Clay comes out. I think he dropped, what, 41 in that game, something like that? He had, like, went off or something like that. I mean, he was yeah. – the saddest part for OKC fans at the time – that without knowing that was the last was time they see Kevin Durant in their own building. They thought they were going to the finals. They thought they'd have Durant and instead they got neither. So that's, that's really, I mean, that's, that's I agree with be, you though. That would be, that would be my choice. That's today. gotta be one of the all time sports heartbreaks uh, to go from maybe you get to the finals up three, one and win it. And maybe that keeps him in 
OKC if they won stays. a title there. If they would have won, I think maybe, and then to blow it, and then have him join the team that you blew the lead against. So that's that's gotta that's gotta sting, and and it you know it, it kind of makes you see why the OKC fans treated not condoning it. They should not have treated him the way they did, but like I could understand where they were coming from. But um, but I definitely go with that game, uh, and and this is something that we're gonna continue through. Yep. Through every show, we'll alternate alternate weeks. Next week, I'll have uh, three or four different options for you. But the one thing that we will have every week, and we will keep tally of, uh, we bonded over Sporkle and sports trivia when we started working together at NBC Sports Washington. So sure we did. thought it'd be fitting to end each show with a trivia question for each other and continue to tally it and, and yep. see who, uh, who, who reigns supreme. So on the note of what uh, you asked Tim Kirchin or what we asked Tim Kirchin, that there was kind of like a, a team or two that might have been forgotten for each of those players. Uh, this is something that came up in conversation actually a couple of days ago for me. Uh, Mike Piazza, he mm-hmm. played for one, two, three, four, five teams in his MLB career. Can you name the five? All right. So let's see. Played for the Mets. Yes. Played for the Dodgers. Those are the two big ones. Played for the Padres. Yes. Played for Oakland. That's where he finished his career. And, ooh, the fifth team. The Braves are popping in my head, but I don't think that's right. Did he ever go to the AL um, besides Oakland? Well, he clearly liked it out west. After I've, got you at about 40, I mean, I've got you at about 40 seconds left okay. and still all three strikes. Um, I mean, I'll go Braves. Was it the Braves? No. I didn't think it was. Um. Man, who was his last one? Uh, you got the last one. The last one was Oakland. It was in between there that he had another team. I mean, I'll stick on the West Coast. Was it the Giants? was not. Uh, yeah, that fifth one, I don't know if I'm going to know. I would probably, if I had one guess left, I'd say Houston. Uh, Houston? No. The last yeah. team was the Florida Marlins. In 1998, the Dodgers were trying to trade him to the Mets, ultimately got to the Mets, but they flipped him to the Marlins first. He played five games, was not even there for like a week, played five games, and then got flipped to the Mets. It was just wow. a quick little pit stop before he got traded to the Mets. So it was Dodgers traded him to the Marlins. Marlins traded him to the Mets. Five games he played for the Marlins. So when, when we one. were talking earlier with Tim yeah. and, and with all those, you know, the three teams for each of the batters, uh, that th- this popped into my mind and uh, – and I got you. So there we go. One for you one. did. I had the four. I couldn't the get the fifth. <laughs> All right. So my question for you is this past decade, from 2010 to 2019, there were four MLB teams that did not make the playoffs. Can you name them? Ten years. Did not make it. Did not make it. Yep. All right. All right. Time is starting now. Go ahead. All right. The Marlins? The Marlins are one. Or one. I mean, they got their couple World Series in this millennium, but – Right. Um, they got two of them. Yeah, but they haven't been <laughs> good in a while. Um, 2010. So the Padres come to mind. They did have Jake Peavy and were good for a little bit, but I'm going to say the Padres. Padres are another correct answer. All right, all right, all right. So you got two down, two to go. All right. Uh, this decade. This decade, yes. So, so 2010 to 2019. The yep. White Sox. They got to the World Series. Yes. Four. All right. All right. We're through. That's three. All right. All right. So you got three. You need one more. You're uh, 40 seconds. So you got 50 seconds. All right. Now. All right. All right. 2010. 
So they spent a lot of money, but they never had success. The Angels? Not the Angels, All no. Right. They made it. It was, right. it was Trout. The one year that Trout oh, made Oh, yeah. Yep. They made it. The Mariners? Sticking the Mariners that is correct. There we go. <laughs> Yo, Malfa on the board. The White Sox and the Marlins were, were the two that I wasn't sure you may, you may be getting. The Marlins with. I only got just because being a Mets fan, like, I know our division. So that was right off the bat easy. The White Sox was the one that actually surprised myself. I'm like, I'm like after I got the Marlins, I was, like, traveling west. And I'm trying to think of, oh, well, right. I know they got to the World Series, but, like, they haven't been good in a long time. But, um. No, that's good. I'm excited to that keep was doing awesome. Well, that was, a great, that was a great first episode. That was great. I mean, I enjoyed the first episode, and uh, I really am excited to continue this uh, going forward. Mm-hmm. A big, one more big thank you to Tim Kirchin. Did not have to do that. Incredibly nice of him, and incredibly fun guest. It was a, a very enjoyable Absolutely. 20-ish minutes. So uh, thank you all for tuning in to this first episode of Glass of Joe, and we hope to see you guys here back next Thursday.